You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and thanks for subscribing to the Premium Podcast. Um, The recent podcast that I did on Argentina and the 1978 World Cup was informed by the time of season it is. The World Cup only comes once every four years, and we're experiencing... A great one as I record this. uh, Looks like it's going to be France and Croatia. Pretty exciting. In 78, it was the Netherlands and Argentina, as we discussed in the last cast, and it was being held, so the home team was winning. That's not the case today. Although Russia made a valiant effort, they were defeated by Croatia, and so the home team for the World Cup is not uh, in the final game. 78 they were, and it was an opportunity not just for a good soccer game, which it was, but unfortunately for the dictatorship in that country to show off a bit, and even to the point we now know, wasn't generally known at the time, even to the point of intimidating prisoners as to, hey, look, you are being forgotten, no one cares about you, look at all these Argentinians cheering for the regime. They don't care that you're in prison, etc. You know, it wasn't my favorite podcast episode to record of all time. It's a, It was a very difficult subject, and I think I was even being kind of censored in how much I described the bad things that went on um, when I just, you know, briefly referenced people being intimidated or tortured like things like that Uh, without getting into a lot of detail you should amp up um what you're thinking about when you're thinking about torture this isn't like the waterboarding type thing this is involving cattle prods and in some cases surgeries and things like this and psychological intimidation Hindu were very bad people. There were connections with uh, Nazis. That's something that I don't think gets enough um, discussion, and I tried to bring that up in the cast. There were several prisoners who noticed that either they were playing uh, Hitler in the background if the person was Jewish, or there was a big swastika. You know, just anything to degrade and dehumanize the subjects of their torture and intimidation. Um, one newspaper editor uh, who was, we referenced, he was the editor of the La Prenza. It was a really big paper. 
when he was brought in, uh, he was questioned as to if he was a Zionist or not. And he believes his life was only spared because they wanted uh, the Argentine junta to put a Zionist on trial. So you're talking about a country that has neo-Nazis in its midst. And, you know, I couldn't dwell on it in the regular cast. There's just a limited amount of time and scope. But that's a point that's just one of the many really horrible things. And I hope I didn't undersell too much the degree of torment that the prisoners went through. But in if I did, it was for, you know, at a certain point, you just have to have a listenable podcast. And you don't want to spend all of this time going into uh, gory details. At the same time, we brought up Edward Galliano, who has a great way of bridging that gap between describing the events and not leaving the bad things out. And we talked about soccer, sports, and politics in general, and the country of Argentina then and now. My trip to Argentina eight years ago, going to a bunch of different like coffee shops. Um, I really did walk around. Sometimes would take the Sub D, which was the subway, or one of these ubiquitous black Volkswagen bugs that would be all around the city. I mean, you could just, you didn't need Uber. I'm sure they have Uber now. This was eight years ago. Um, you didn't need it. You just waved your hand, and there was a, a little Volkswagen bug. <laughs> it seemed like in any part of the city, they were everywhere. I did visit the Plaza de Mayo. I saw they're still protesting there, the mothers of the disappeared. And that's a point that I wanted to make here on the premium podcast that I talk about the bit of the leftovers that I still kind of left on my legal pad. And that was one of them that, you know, we talked about the hunter. We talked about its past, and the hunter's going to be gone by 1983. So in years, it's relatively short compared to other Latin American dictatorships. The, the Chilean dictatorship lasts longer, so it's 75 to 1983. But in those eight years, there was an awful lot of death and torture. So it's, you know... But by 83, we're seeing it go away. There are actually three different juntas. That's why very often, you know, in Chile, you refer to Pinochet. Um, in Argentina, um, in Argentina, you know, Videla is the main one, the first one, and the most gruesome, the most vicious of the dictators. But there are actually three because even though we're talking about inter-junta politics, strangely, um, there's three different juntas, and I think it's not that strange. Basically, you're talking about a country with rampant inflation, a bad economy, and even a junta at some point is is responsible. And so there's coups within the coup, and there's three different dictators that end up ruling. One of them even tries to be a little bit uh, reform-minded. Um, initially, they're going to start doing these really aggressive, like Milton Friedman-type private sector things with the pension and the health care and things like that. This is what was implemented in Chile. And after bad experiences with it, it, you know, people aren't happy. Obviously, they can't protest because they know what will happen to them, but they're still not happy. And there are complaints. And, you know, there's a coup within the coup. And then there's a third coup when that reforming dictator of sorts gets a little bit too haughty. And then the the last one, Galateri, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, is the final dictator of Argentina who gets the country to the Falkland Islands War after the perceived as a loss there. They didn't get the islands back, did some sunk a couple British ships, which wasn't nothing but um, against a power like that, but uh, lost the Falkland Islands. And after some, a war has a way of spreading news. 
And after some of the news from foreign outlets does reach Argentina about how many lives were lost and the stupid decisions that were made, the junta is toppled. Most of the worst part of the killing occurs between the time of the junta taking over in 75 and, in fact, much of it in, like, the first couple of months through 76 through 77 and into 78 while the World Cup is going on. It does seem to die down 79 to 83, but it doesn't mean it stops. In 83, uh, the the hunt is floundering and a the, the, the military wants a way out and a human rights lawyer who's enormously popular for having brought forward the cases of, of families with disappeared relatives uh, is made president of Argentina. But even he has some problems. The new democracy is not perfect. There's still the same economic issues. They're always dealing with inflation. And he's forced, because he can't totally control the military still, he's forced to end. They do something called the full stop, which ends the prosecutions of the junta. So only the very top leaders of the junta are prosecuted at all. His successor, Carlos Mendem, pardons General Videla in a sign of amnesty. And people are outraged, of course. In recent times, when documents that demonstrate um, through the Chilean connection, all right, the, the U.S. is forced to release um, documents about the involvement with the CIA in Chile under the Clinton administration. And when some of these start coming out and reaching Argentina, you, you can see that the U.S. has also been supportive to the Argentine junta. And this is going to cause outrage in the country. And it's that CIA connection that leads um, the president to overrule. And then the Supreme Court finds the pardons unconstitutional and the Congress votes to allow prosecutions now of the general. So really, I bring that up because um, even as I was visiting the Plaza de Maya in uh, Mayo in um, 2010, uh, years after this dictatorship, um, not everyone had even begun their prosecutions. So the dictator Videla dies in 2016, and he was um, serving a sentence at that time. So I didn't get a chance to mention that you know, in the 1978 World Cup game, uh, Henry Kissinger is sitting there as the guest of the dictators of Argentina. He was supportive of the coup. He was supportive of Pinochet in Chile, as was Nixon, supportive of the Brazilian dictatorship, anything to put a wedge between Latin America and the communists. And the junta, if anything, was anti-communist. They were literally killing uh, anyone who was communist at all in the country or even, you know, had spread a leaflet about Marx. So, um, that's a sad part of history. Uh, there's going to be ways that they'll defend their actions, but certainly with Pinochet, there was CIA involvement at minimum in making, uh, in, in alienating using us support, us money, uh, anyone who supported the Allende government before Pinochet and making it easy for the government to be toppled 
Um, we still don't know the full extent of everything. With the Junta, it looks like they came to power originally, but there's obviously training, machinery, money that they receive from the United States. Jimmy Carter, after the problems with uh, Nicaragua, after Nicaragua and Somoza there is overthrown, and there's a communist government that comes to power, and Jimmy Carter is facing political problems with it. He's forced to, as well, uh, deal with the Argentinians, however reluctant he is. Reagan comes into office with the full-throated support for the Argentine junta. It's only the Fal- Falkland Islands War where the Argentine junta did the one thing they couldn't do uh, with the Reagan administration, and that's launch a war against our greatest ally, Britain, particularly with Margaret Thatcher, who had a great relationship with Ronald Reagan there. So they crossed the Reagan administration there. But in every other way, um, the United States, particularly ambassador to the U.N., Jean Kirkpatrick, is supporting that junta. And one of the things that she makes these claims, and this was kind of her stock and trade, that it's better to deal with dictators than to deal with communists. One of the points that she makes is that, well, at least the traditional autocrats are more respectful of traditional values than these new communism, you know, communists who are going to come and and upend the whole system. You know, for instance, they're going to respect the family. And um, Robert Cox, the journalist who we talked about, and other newspaper publishers who were imprisoned and victims tell stories of families, you know, being tortured together. Um, they would often pick up members of the of an entire family because the goal of the junta was actually elimination of subversives. They weren't respecting any family boundaries whatsoever. If someone was considered in their minds to be communist, they were subhuman. So uh, obviously there's some shame with the United States in the story, I think just in the scope of talking about a soccer event and the junta and the disappeared and explaining it and things like that, you know, we can't get into everything. But there certainly was a shameful record involving the United States. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. However, it's also not over... In other ways, um, the most recent government since Christina Churchner and her husband, Nestor Churcher, kind of shared the presidency, uh, she ran right after him. Uh, he he died in 2010, and she just continued as president and was reelected. Um, they take up kind of the banner of Juan Perón, the populist banner. They had support among the very poor in Buenos Aires neighborhoods. In the, in the shanty towns, um, and they expose the involvement of the United States. They're extremely anti-American. There, there's numerous. I, I can recall personally being affected that in Argentina, when you arrive as a 
or or this maybe used to be the case, uh, as a U.S. citizen, you had to pay a hundred dollar fee to get into the country. And there's also numerous trade embargoes. They don't, you know, we don't trade back and forth with the meat products or many things like that. Um, they are actually one of the countries seeking to reduce the relationship with the United States during the policies of the Kirchner. So this is a this is a political force. Now this would be a political force on the left, and they were keen to use the documentation of the CIA involvement with the junta and to use the crimes of the junta and to showcase the victims of the junta for the for political purposes. And um, you know they are going to be the ones that make the pardons of the dictators unconstitutional, but. You know, there's an open question there because the Kirchners also are pretty well known to have been very corrupt. There's still a lot of cases ongoing. There's even a case involving a prosecutor that died that's very mysterious that was about to put charges up against the former president. And that's still all. You know, in fact, one of the people who is a son of a uh, journalist that was imprisoned and a prominent person, a victim of the junta, is indeed... Um, someone who is now under investigation for corruption. So it's kind of like, you know, new people took over the government. They made reforms in this area. They weren't a hunt anymore. They weren't uh, killing people, although there is, is still violence in Argentina as in any country. Um, but were the people better? Because there's definitely allegations of corruption and any argument that one would make with the Kirchners would you would just come back that you're, you know, part of an American plot or something like that. There's one more story that we didn't get into, and that's that you did have people who were participating in the crimes of the junta. There's a one particular police chief that was very notorious, but known by all the survivors. And he was not arrested, at least until very recently. And he was living in Recoleta, which is a nice neighborhood in Buenos Aires, uh, serving out his career. Very often, people who had suffered in these prisons, if they survived, would then run into their torturers and policemen uh, on the street. Um, there, there's and all the things you can imagine happened. They either shouted at them, or in some cases there was a reconciliation, or, or, you know, and there was one case where a widow had chased down a police officer that she knew had some involvement. Uh, so this is all happening in the city. You know, the the crime happened in the city. The people are still living in the city. Most of them, other than the really high officials, were not prosecuted. So it's a very interesting situation. This is all to to give you some of the fabric of all the stuff that couldn't make it into the podcast. But there is one interesting story that in 2007, a witness who had been in one of these uh, prisons at the Naval Mechanics School and had been in the concentration camp and tortured was testifying against this police chief and he was disappeared, not in 1978, but in 2007. And so there still was some active elements. There still are some active elements in politics and crimes being committed um, you know, by this group, you know, trying to protect themselves where they're able to. And, uh, of course, it got a lot of attention. There was outrage and everything like that. So we didn't get a chance to talk about that story. But most importantly, 
we referenced the black bands that were on the World Cup goal, and I didn't get the chance to finish the story. I almost was going to go in and add something in, but um, I said I figure I would leave it for you, the premium podcast subscribers, to hear about. Um, as you could probably surmise, the black bands that were on each goalpost in the 1978 Argentina final were there as a remembrance to the victims. And then you're probably going to say, but this is a repressive country. How did they allow that to happen? Well, the groundskeeper, and this is someone who had to be, wasn't talking about it at the time or anywhere near at the time. 30 years later, he's interviewed and come to find that um, the groundskeeper, they had many friends who had been disappeared. Uh, you know, people knew generally in Buenos Aires what was going on. And they looked for a way. They have this big TV event. What can they do as the grounds crew? They thought about writing something in the grass. But they said, they're just going to take us and we're going to be on a plane over the Atlantic if we do that. So they put the black stripes or they look like armbands on either end of the goalposts. And one of the things about the story is that as much as the dictators wanted to use football to their advantage politically, to win over the populace, to make the regime seem popular. They didn't really know anything about soccer whatsoever. These were military generals spend their time with that. Videla, as far as they knew, never watched a game. In fact, the World Cup, when he's smiling there after the victory, most people say that's the only time they ever saw him smile. Um, they know nothing about soccer. So what the groundskeepers were able to convince the military attache that was in charge of running this whole World Cup was that putting the black on either side of the goal was traditional, whereas these new modern goals um, that are all white on either side of the poles, you know, that's the new tradition. But the, the old tradition, the old way to do it, the proper way is to put black on either side. You know, just like the soccer ball. And they were able to convince the dictators that this was the, the right way to go and never mentioned a word that it was in remembrance of anything. And it worked. And all of the World Cup games featured uh, these uh, type of armbands. Well, the dictatorship went for anything traditional. What I like about the story and the sad part of leaving it out of the last podcast is, is that, well, as it turned out, while this game was going on, the disappeared were remembered. They were remembered. And they were remembered by a lot of journalists and by the mothers of the disappeared in the playa. And as bad as things were and had been already, they would get better. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. 
So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, in a recent episode, I spoke with Dr. Paul Cartledge of the University of Cambridge about Greek democracy. Wasn't he great? I mean, I think it was it was a great episode, but it was a long one. We talked about a lot of topics and kind of feeling that maybe we need to put it together more. Um, my feeling is that um, Greek democracy is not held in high value in America as maybe Roman-style republicanism, you know, representation. Um, I like the concepts we talked about, about random civic participation outside of juries. We don't really have that as part of our American system. So I thought it was a big takeaway from what Dr. Cartledge was saying, you know, and yeah, you know, I think another big question is, do we take democracy in vain? And, you know, have we created something that's getting farther and farther away? The amount of representatives that we have versus people farther and farther away from real democracy, but yet using the name of democracy. And is that the reason that democracy is under siege? Because we don't have a full democracy. And that's the, I think, the takeaway from, from what was a long interview with a lot of parts and a lot of uh, Greek words and things like that. Um, I, You know, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is not going to become an interview show. We did a lot of interviews in uh, last year. I really took advantage of it. I had a lot of authors contacting me. They still are. I just took advantage of it. We had this technology. Let's use it. But I'm using interviews where they're interesting, where they're unique, and where they can add something and I can have a conversation with the person and try to get some unique content or answer a gap in knowledge that I might have. I don't know particularly a lot about Greek democracy and the ancient Greeks, so talking to Dr. Cartledge was great for that reason. And these interviews, having built up a good amount of them, are are useful for my own knowledge and things that we can reference in later podcasts in the in as we move forward with the cast. But it's not my intention, by the way, to switch to interview only <laughs> or anything like that. <laughs> Finally, I really enjoyed talking with Patricia O'Toole and talking about Woodrow Wilson, really hunkering down on some points about him, about the desegregation of the government. I mean, to the extent that we can nuance that, it's wrong. But how did it actually come about? He didn't just, Woodrow Wilson just didn't come in and order this done. Um, and talking about the trade-offs. And one of the points that if I had one takeaway from that conversation, it would be when Patricia O'Toole talked about how um, really after Woodrow Wilson, a significant amount of the Gilded Age and that idea of... Um, the really the rich people having all the money. Not that that hasn't totally gone away, but it was reduced, and it was reduced specifically by a Federal Reserve, which was able to provide more credit to more people. Right? It's not about just some central bank. It's about the fact that that central bank can fortify banks throughout the country and make sure they keep operating and make loans to people and that provided more credit. The reduction of tariffs provided better prices, and the income tax provided, you know, in addition to functioning to reduce the tariffs, 
also ensured that wealthier people paid more because at the time it was a very progressive income tax. So all of those things that are happening under Woodrow Wilson, he needs to get Southern votes from Congress to do. And she talked about that trade-off. You know, I think that's a key takeaway from her interview on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics because it's not something you hear discussed with Woodrow Wilson elsewhere. And you really think about it, and we went from Gilded Age, say right after the Civil War, to the end of it in a, in some ways in the 1920s. And the bridge person, the bridge president, not responsible for all of it, but kind of symbolizing it and affecting a lot of it, is Woodrow Wilson. Something to be, I'll definitely explore more in future podcasts. So that's why I like the interviews, because they're definitely able to bring up thoughts that I don't have. And someone like Patricia O'Toole studying Woodrow Wilson for two years is definitely going to do better than I in um, in in that individual topic. Thanks for listening and thanks for subscribing to the premium podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.